it's not so much durational work, but rather what hospitality is as practice. Art teaches me what it is, I would say, in ways which theory cannot. Within the constraint of maybe a 10 to 15 week semester or quarter, it might be very difficult to be able to teach this, which, which what I think it, it is, is teaching individuals or human beings how to have a certain posture of hospitality, how to have a, like how to think through hospitality and generosity. Amid xenophobic challenges to America's core value of welcoming the tired and the poor, Irina Aristarkova calls for new forms of hospitality in her engagement with the works of eight international artists. In Arrested Welcome, the first monograph on hospitality in contemporary art, she employs a feminist perspective and asks who, how, and what determines who is worthy of welcome. With a focus on lessons that contemporary artists teach about the potential of hospitality, Aristarkova looks at Linda Hattendorf's documentary The Cats of Mirkatani, the Serbian-born installation and performance artist Anna Provachki's project The Greeting Committee Reports, American artist Faith Wilding's performance Waiting, Taiwanese-American artist Lee Mingwei's Aesthetics of Hospitality, American bioartist Kathy High's project Embracing Animal, Mithu Sen's artworks that explore questions of radical hospitality and crossing borders, Pippa Baca and Sylvia Moro's art project Brides on Tour, and Ken Aptekar's exhibition Neighbors in Lübeck, Germany. Aristarkova is professor at the Penny W. Stamps School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. She's joined today by Jorge Lucero, an artist and author from Chicago who is chair and associate professor of art education at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and co-editor of the international journal Visual Arts Research. This conversation was recorded in February 2021. Hello, uh, everyone. My name is Irina Ristarkova, and I'm the author of Arrested Welcome, Hospitality in Contemporary Art. And I'm very pleased uh, to be today in conversation with uh, Professor Jorge Lucero, who is an art artist and chair um, and associate professor of art education at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I know Jorge since uh, uh, we both were at Penn State University and his practice, both as an educator as well as an artist, has been close to the topic of hospitality. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Hi, Jorge. Hi, Irina. It's so good to, to hear you. Um, one of the first um, topics that we plan on addressing is this um, uh, larger question uh, of invisibility. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was how much of uh, practices of artists whom I'm discussing such as uh, Liming Wei, Fate Wilding, Anna Provachki, Mitu Sen, Pippa Baka, Ken Aptikar, uh, how many uh, practices of their um, uh, art projects remained invisible. And, and therefore I saw writing as one path through which a wider audience might experience their works. Uh, what invisibility means to your own practice as an educator and artist? 
uh, it's, I feel like it's the very edge of the work that I'm trying to do. Um, it's the part that fascinates me the most because in many ways, it's the part that I have to contend with my own posture in the world through. And what I mean by that is, you know, my training as an artist, and I would include within that the years that I was in school, but also all of the time that I've been making art. So somewhere between the last 25 to, to 30 years, my training has always had this one component, which is the show your work component. It's the part that you're supposed to, in some way or another, even if it's in the mere act of talking about what you've done or showing you know, a terrible photograph or a piece of documentation, that there was still this component where you had to demonstrate that the thing that you do or the thing that you say you've been doing it is exists in some way or another. Documentation has been a, probably one of the most important components of what I've done as an artist. And of course, that maps over almost 100% with my practice as a teacher and the practice of many teachers, which is typically an activity that is mostly unseen. Um, it's not that it isn't perceived. It's not that it isn't that there aren't people who are not registering that it's happening. For the most part, all of the participants and the teachers and sometimes the the communities around them, whether it's parents and, and uh, administrators and other staff in the school buildings, everybody perceives that it's happening, registers it in the body somehow or another. But in terms of having a one-for-one -one documentation or having something that does the experience justice, that's almost non-existent in teaching. These two things sort of run parallel with each other. Artworks that are perceptible, but in mostly invisible, very difficult to look at, very difficult to show evidence of, and then uh, and then teaching, which I, to me, I think it's a parallel practice. Um, indeed, and uh, sometimes I encountered uh, writing about this this works, for example, Anna Provachki's project, the greeting committee reports that she did a documenta in Kassel, um, that part of this project uh, was a video art pieces that she did um, uh, and which were shown to the public during the exhibition uh, over summer. But most of this work, which is more radical, which I find more challenging, like for example, training and more, and also more um, controversial potentially of training staff of the exhibition in practices of uh, greeting and in practices of how to handle uh, difficult visitors. Uh, that part was invisible. And when I spoke to uh, Provachki, she talked about her conscious decision of not documenting that and, and that there is a feeling that in hospitality, when you document your hospitality, you're kind of uh, right, looking for gratitude or you're kind of looking for praise. And here um, I wrote about the tension on the one hand of uh, how the lack of documentation works in the art world, especially works against an artist. There is no trace of the work itself. Uh, but on the other hand, it leaves up to this promise of what hospitality, um, ideals of hospitality have to be. So 
uh, I find for me this uh, question of invisibility is potent. The introduction called Welcome as Resistance and the chapter in the book on Anna Pravachki called Reclaimed Civility uh, because I found that her approach to reclaiming what it means to be hospitable to each other contained this invisibility. And what do you think about this fact that invisible labor of those who already been invisible in hospitality, like uh, janitors or at exhibitions, um, like uh, people who sell tickets, like uh, artists who uh, take on those roles or who try to pay attention to those types of practices, then by not documenting it, they be, themselves become invisible. And very often they are women artists. And then we again go back into the cycle of self almost, self erasure, as we're trying to live up to some right expectation of being this ideal hosts, uh, while we're trying to reframe invisibility and make um, the labor of hospitality more visible. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the questions that comes up maybe the most whenever I have to give a, a public talk, and it creates the most amount of tension because there's a kind of negotiating that there are, an artist has to capture or an artist has to do in order to figure out how and when to present what they've done and with who they did it with. So actually your introduction to the book captures that magnificently because when you talk about um, the the director, uh, Hattendorf, I think is the way to pronounce her last name, and her her working with this uh, street artist, a homeless man. Merikitani, uh, Jimmy Merikitani. Yeah, so when she's confronted with this situation where she's making a movie about him and then... 9-11 happens and she has to make a decision about whether or not she's going to let this homeless man come into her home. And that's the first decision that she's making where she's trying to figure out who am I doing this for? But then as the maker of the film, she then has a second decision that she has to make because obviously all of this transpires during the making of the film and even her own having to include herself in the film, which is atypical to a, to a documentary. Like it sort of removes that faux objectivity that we maybe come to expect from documentary films when that wall is broken and the director now is a part of the film. But she has to then make this decision about whether or not she's going to put the, that in there and even his response to being hosted by her in her apartment during that time and and all of the things that then emerged from her relationship friendship even with him right that's a constant battle that i have to negotiate within my own body constantly because you know i again i work mostly with people who are not necessarily thinking about the things that we're doing together as art practice in, in the conventional sense, in the sense that in the sense that we're making a kind of currency that can then be circulated within a very specific market. And here I'm not talking about, you know, photographs, like I'm not talking about photographic documentation that you could then sell. I'm talking about any kind of documentation, even the, the telling of the story of the collaboration or the partnership that gets you or opens up opportunities for an artist like myself, right? Because if I work with a group of students, for example, or if I work in a community and we make a work together 
And obviously after it's over, they're not, for the most part, they're not going on and saying like building a CV or building a website off of these projects that we collaborated on together. Whereas I am, I have, you know, a list of the projects that I've done. And whenever I'm invited to give a presentation or I have to have an exhibition or something like that, whenever I go into those more conventional modes of presenting the work that has been done in my primarily intangible practice, I then perhaps show one or two images and tell the story of that work. I equivocate it to a a printing of one's own currency because then you sort of, you're cashing out those bits of documentation and and circulating them, right? So there really is a a question of, and you bring those questions up in in the introduction around this filmmaker's decisions, particularly around the question of like doing a cost benefits analysis, you know, where you're actually saying, is it worth it for me to present this work, even though I'm the one who's benefiting from it the most, and it wasn't necessarily me who created it all by myself. I should say, and I'm not, I guess I'm not saying this to totally like shine a different light on the thing that I just said, but I have had experiences where you do the work and then you don't talk about it or you don't show it. But it's a difficult thing to defend because usually when you give an artist talk, you you show, you know, 10 to 12 things that you've done and you're really just showing the highlights or the tip of the iceberg, right? And so people react actually to the fact that you're showing these 12 things and they think that you're being exploitative, right? That you're like taking these people's work or these people's lives and using them uh, to, to build this kind of currency for yourself. But it's just not an easy thing to have an artist talk where you present the invisible parts, where you present all of the things that, that are difficult to show like that, that wouldn't make for, that wouldn't make for a good art, artist talk. So I usually end up having to explain that actually in the, in the question and answer part of any kind of discussion. Uh, because it is very difficult to bring those things to the light without, in some ways, doing damage to them. I'm, I must say that I learn a lot about this from uh, artists like yourself and from practices uh, of hospitality, pointing out that, uh, on the one hand, that is something that ha- that is always with us, those types of decisions. They are ongoing decisions um, in our everyday life that uh, it's not something that we can, you know, predict in advance, right? You don't know what it would feel like at the end. And that's where I know that we had these conversations also about what is documentation and what is ongoing work of hospitality. I believe that uh, the way in which uh, what happened to Jimmy Marikitani, for example, right, there is a film that we can experience that Linda Hattendorf did, but at the same time, there was also um, life. There was uh, Merikitani's life that uh, he had exhibitions. He passed away uh, surrounded by loved ones and friends. Uh, His life was changed. And uh, I think that that's why for me, this uh, point I'm making that I'm glad that she she did that. Um, I think the aesthetics of film are then feeding into discussing works like Liming Wei or Pipabaka, uh, discussing other works where I feel that the work, it's not so much durational work, but rather what hospitality is as practice. Art teaches me what it is, I would say, in ways which theory cannot. Right? It's uh, very similar to where 
what you just described. Would I push things that far? Right? Can I be? What kind of decisions do I make when um, in a in a crisis mode? We see it now with the pandemic or with what happened um, in Texas that people take in people. People continue to risk the encounter during difficult times, and uh, we don't with so much of a uh, refugee disc- uh, and immigration going on, being an immigrant myself in this country, I felt that the artists were teaching me something that I wanted to um, highlight without necessarily feeling that indeed as a scholar, and that's when in the introduction I'm also trying to uh, ask that question, why to write about this, right? Do I write about it? And how do we write about this works? So I hope that, you know, going deeper uh, of thinking with artists rather than thinking, you know, passing particular aesthetic judgments only, it helps us to move the hospitality forward as practice itself, right? This practice, which I feel has not yet lived up to its expectation. Yeah, um, I want to say something about that because I I feel like, you know, I, I wasn't reading the book to review it. Uh, I, 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 res- I got the book way before I, uh, you even contacted me about having this conversation together, precisely because I think we have, there's some overlapping interest. And uh, so th- that's where I started. In anticipation of this conversation, I got into the book more and I was really struck by, so this is kind of a meta thing, but I was really struck by how welcoming the book in and of itself is, you know, I wonder actually who, when you were thinking about the audience for the book, like who you were thinking about, because for me as a person who it functions on on multiple levels, like on one level, it functions as an artist because in some ways the, the examples that you're walking us through and the way that you're talking about the artworks and the artists. So you talk about their practice, you talk about the actual, uh, a few examples of some of the things that they've made, but even more interestingly, you situate it around these questions uh, and this narrative about hospitality and how that's important for us on a larger scale, like as, as civilians, as, as maybe siblings, right? Like uh, siblings to each other or, or brothers and sisters to each other. That opens up a bunch of permissions for me. Like it makes me, as an artist, it makes me want to be more like that in my work, even though there's already aspects of my work that, that have that. And I would say that they're driven by personal history and things that my parents taught me, things that I learned in church, all of these things, you know, they just like a sort of a way of living or a way of thinking about other human beings. It affirms that kind of behavior and it makes me want to do it in a way that's even more on purpose, first of all. And I think it brings up really good questions to that, like ethical questions that have to be contended with. And and I don't know that there's a good answer, like even the the thing that I was bringing up earlier about when is it exploitative, when is it uh, generative. I don't think there's a clean blanket answer for all these types of projects. I think every single type of activity like this needs to be taken up within its own ethical constraints and its own considerations. But the other thing that it made me think about is how, what a great book it's going to be for my students, you know, like for, to be able to share it with my students and, and open this world up to them too. Because I I think in some ways they, 
it's not something that is necessarily taught. It, it might be skirted around in some ways, right? Like it, you might get a little bit of it in some of your art theory classes or your art history classes, but it might be a very difficult thing to curricularize in the sense that, you know, within the fifth, within the constraint of maybe a 10 to 15 week semester or quarter, it might be very difficult to be able to teach this, which, which what I think it, it is, is teaching individuals or human beings how to have a certain posture of hospitality, how to have a, like how to think through hospitality and generosity. And I mean, you can, I suppose I can envision a scenario where I could like plant the seeds of it and, and the, the book would be very useful for that, but it's just a difficult thing to pedagogize within the constraints of what the academy allows for us, right? But the book really opens up a platform for discussion and for imagination, you know, for, for us to, to be like, oh, like these, these are the possibilities and, and even the risks, not just dangerous things that some of these artists, you know, kind of meddle in. But in fact, I mean, as in the case of the last artists, the, the bride's project, you know, where, where there's actually somebody actually loses their life in that, in the process of that, right? Yeah, I was thinking about this idea of risking your life to do this kind of work. We do teach it, even though we don't, it isn't the same kind of risk. It isn't like, you know, potentially violent or potentially uh, immediate or tragic in the, in the way that it was for these artists. Uh, but there is a kind of exchange of life energy or time passing that gets made. And it is a risk that needs to be considered when you make this kind of work, because I think that the critique that can be made of a lot of social practice and relational aesthetics and participatory art, which you also bring up in the in the introduction here, is about legitimacy. And a lot of times that's anchored with authenticity or genuineness. And if I were to boil that down, frequently it has to do with commitment. Like it has to do with how much is a person willing to give of themselves for the thing to be the thing that they're saying they want it to be. And that's a very difficult thing to ask people to do, but it's an also difficult thing to ask yourself to do, right? So so the examples in this book in particular, where that line of life and art gets almost completely obliterated, are maybe the most inspiring. Uh, so many great points, questions. Thank you also so much for being such a receptive reader. I spent a lot of time on, as you can imagine, for... Um, for a non-native speaker and writer, um, that's why in the end, in the acknowledgments, I talk about what it means to write in a foreign language and how potentially I feel contemporary art could be such foreign language. And uh, I considered my role as a writer also to indeed welcome uh, the audience. When you asked about the audience, the audience who might ask uh, genuinely, uh, why are people doing these things? Right? And feel alienated indeed from artworks, which uh, I'm referring to, or, or just not, like I, I know that maybe for many of my own family and friends, um, these artworks would be challenging. They would be something potentially controversial, not to say uh, outright crazy. 
uh, and not just simply feel good, right? We are not talking about feel good. Indeed, as you said, we are, we are talking about risking one, one's life uh, for the sake of one's own art or for the sake of the principle that one is trying to uh, kind of transmit or present in one's own art practice. So indeed, for me, the audience was very important. And I think part of that answer is to open up the audience of contemporary art to just uh, enable this foreign language of and, and often considered elitist language indeed within our discussions between relational aesthetics, social practice, radical art, political art, contemporary uh, multimedia, uh, all kinds of art, to open it to more so that the, you, you can give this book to your, indeed, like mine, potentially family and friends who are not necessarily right coming from our world and say this is what i this is why i do this right this is what it is about it's not very different from what we do in our communities right it's just that artists are redefining it uh, incubating it pushing it somewhere else and that's why they are doing it so that was one part of the audience i wanted indeed to write in a way where um that path is possible Right? Which means, of course, right, totally different from the way I was taught as, in, as a theorist, as a, especially as a feminist theorist. Right? You become acquainted with, uh, I started with uh, hospitality studies very much with uh, Derrida, with Levinas, with a lot of French and German theorizing, with Dostoevsky, with thinking about Sanskrit uh, key texts on hospitality, like the law of Manu. I looked at hospitality in other cultures, uh, the Bible. Uh, so hospitality is foundational to so many different societies, but often it's coded in, in uh, there are fables, right, on the one hand, but then on the other hand, we get contemporary theory where things might get pretty dense. And uh, this book, I wanted to be um, much, much different, let's put it that way. Uh, but it was challenging because it's really challenging, as you are saying, uh, to open the audience. It's really challenging to, uh, that was, I, I think, for me, most challenging with writing, rewriting, getting it to be read, then re, uh, write, rewriting again. In order to, on the one hand, open it up, but on the other hand, not look like one is dumbing things down. And uh, because issues are complex, contemporary art is often opaque and consciously so. Right? So it cannot be necessarily reduced to some kind of uh, good and bad or, uh, you know, I prefer this and you prefer that. So something else that you mentioned is about the audience on the other hand, for me, the audience has been indeed other uh, feminist art scholars and potentially those who want, uh, who are not so excited about hospitality as a kind of, even as in Derrida himself, it was seen as a promise, right? Hospitality is a kind of a promise that can overcome tolerance that we don't want or hostility that we see so much, right? So... Uh, I, I felt that it was very European, it was very male, it was very white, it was very inadequate to where we are today in this current moment, that those foundations of hospitality that, that are coming in our traditions 
uh, including in these foundational texts, they are pretty unwelcoming to vast groups of people. Uh, for me, as a feminist scholar, you can imagine how it, it felt when uh, at conferences people just felt very defensive about hospitality because women especially, uh, or if you travel in other parts of the world, people say we are already supposed to be welcoming. Right? If you go to other parts of the world with highly developed tourist uh, sectors and industries, right, hospitality might sound pretty cynical or even uh, something that is imposed on, on people right, to be expected of them. Not anything to be uh, praised, but rather right, you are supposed to be nice. And that's what so much of the book, right, this layering that Faith Wilding is doing, you're supposed to be waiting, you're supposed to be uh, hospitable by default automatically. So that was, I would say, another audience uh, of the book is artists and scholars who are thinking through these issues, uh, but who are not willing, I would say, I'm not willing to give up on hospitality. And something else that we want to address is question of authority. Right? whose authority it is that we are looking at, who is authority of the host, authority of the guest. I'm not uh, willing to give up on it because I think that other alternatives which are presented, whether for art, right, to like keep art outside of life, right? let's art be uh, in this you know, Kantian sense. Right? Uh, let's only move towards a narrower notion of aesthetic, of what aesthetic is on the one hand, and the role of the artist in society is on the one hand. I'm not willing to give up on that, on those kind of avant-garde and experimental questions that some artists have been working with um, on the one hand. And also, as a feminist scholar, I'm not willing to give up on hospitality in favor of those who only advocate for legal and structural solutions, right? Like rights, um, you know, the, the discourse of law. I believe that this, this distinction between the structural and the personal uh, is problematic. It's very clear, it's becoming clearer and clearer that the kind of leaders we get uh, it's a kind of patriarchs, right? Or the kind of authority we often see in personal relations as well. And so as a feminist scho uh, scholar, for me, uh, it's been really important to point out how hospitality is being challenged, but not, but challenged in ways which might take it elsewhere, right? As you say, we might start with in one place, but we might end up in a another place altogether. And so, um, opening it up, each chapter provides different kinds of takes on it, or solution—not uh, solutions, but rather, uh, right? Look, this is what these artists are doing, and it's out there. And let's look at it. And here, as I'm uh, now. Uh, like thinking with you about it, I'm really curious about this uh, when you say that it gives you more uh, permissions. And I know that you work with this concept of permissions. Uh, maybe if you can say a little bit more about it, what, what it is. And um, I find it really something that I did not think about before, but really curious and learning about more. I think if I had to go back to the core of where it comes from, it would be all the way back to my undergraduate 
experience. I did my undergraduate degree at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. I had a studio that was connected to the actual art museum uh, through a, a, a hallway, an easily accessible hallway. So I would spend um, at least an hour, if not more, every single day that I was in the studio, actually in the art museum also. So this weird, I had this, I had this amazing relationship uh, where, where I had an archive, a treasure trove of artifacts and ex- art experiences um, just a few steps away from the place where I was trying to make work. And the relationship between what I was seeing and what I was making was so intimate that um, I don't think that I've ever lost that. Fast forward to me becoming a teacher and the teacher occupation part of my life taking up the most amount of hours of my day, I had to figure out a way to continue to enact my practice as an artist, but through these new materials that I had been handed in. And what I mean by that is, you know, the institution of teaching, the materiality of time, the the complexity and dynamism of relationships, all of the things that um, I think are situated within, uh, again, the occupation, the job of being a teacher uh, that could then be um, tested for their pliability in order to be able to make work out of them. But I needed examples in the same way that when I was making paintings, I it was important for me to look at paintings or even to look at things that weren't paintings th- that would then sort of speak into the things that I was doing. And they really informed the posture that I was taking. And I would say, I mean, this is nothing special. I, I I know that there's so many artists who work in this way. I mean, I don't know that I talk to, have ever heard an artist talk who doesn't talk about their influences and the way that they sort of have gathered permissions for their own work. The thing is, I needed to find permissions that had some resonance with the kinds of things that I was now working with. And those things ended up becoming uh, conceptual artists. And, and, and I used the little C conceptual art. So now I don't just mean, you know, the things that happened during the sixties and seventies uh, that maybe we would find categorized under conceptual art in a museum, but it, conceptual art with a little C conceptualisms on a global scale. I'm talking about behaviors and postures that artists take on. And, and for the most part, every artist in your book fits the bill of that, of my, you know, umbrella term, (laughs) which is practitioners who make work within, with the same types of materials that I'm making work with. Relationships, time, ephemerality, this question of invisibility, ethics, trying to, like, there would be no denying of the spirit in some way or another, civics or, or civic engagement. And, uh, and the institution also, or, or the different kinds of institutions that rule us, whether they're schools or religions, families or whatever, right? So all of those, I mean, every artist who kind of works under those paradigms or with those materials, they become almost, this is too simple to put it, but maybe like permission givers, you know, where, where like when I see the work of Li Meng Wei, for example, and I see that he is able to, first of all, have an audience of one. And then second of all, have the kind of intimacy and trust of like sharing a meal with somebody and that being the work or 
having a sleepover with somebody and that being the work, right? Like that these kinds of things get open up when I see them mapped over the kinds of activities that are part of my my job as a teacher, it really helps me to transform my job into my practice. Whereas as a teacher, I might open up my classroom and allow students to, of course, pre, pre-pandemic, allow students to be able to eat in the room and to hang out and stuff like that. Now uh, it becomes much more deliberate. I, I maybe even make a placard for the door of the, of the classroom or the office to invite people in to use the space in that way so that it's not just so much like this could happen naturally, but how do we actually present it that way so that it can actually be used in that way? So, um, and that's just one example, but I think every single artist that's presented in the book could be used in that way or could be thought of in that way. Um, And of course, there's hundreds of others. Let's talk, uh, since you mentioned Liming Wei specifically, uh, if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about this, my fascination with this concept that I uh, I've been writing about and thinking about with Fleming Way's work specifically of a welcoming man. And I think it goes back to this uh, notion of authority that you brought in. It's also something about institutional hospitality. It's always been curious to me when in hospitality theories, which uh, traditions which I come from, uh, that uh, Levinas and Derrida refer to so well, that there is an aspect of the feminine that is often left aside in the mysticity, in the private area, a realm. And then when we enter the community, that's where hospitality becomes um, associated with men, right? That's when, you know, men exchange things among themselves, when they, you know, open doors for others. And um, so, and it's not necessarily not even not necessarily, but rather it's necessarily they are not doing it for women. They are often doing it for each other, for themselves. What I found in in um, writing about this, um, that if we are to redefine hospitality as many of the uh, artists do in this book, uh, as not the essentially feminine uh, notion, whether it's psychoanalytically, right, or in any other way, you know, like feminine within one's own head. If we just decouple it from gender, right, then we are posing this question of a welcoming man, not as something as a contradiction in terms, not as some kind of new creature out of cosmos and we've never encountered it before. But it's very interesting to me what happens to individuals, what happens to society. Uh, as you said, when when there is an opening discussion about this one-on-one, right? And I'm particularly curious what you think about it because Li Mingwei, um, if people do not know that uh, he's a, a self-identified man, right? that it's a male name, uh, they assume that this is a woman artist based on his works. Uh, that they they find it, uh, and mean way often as I'm writing in my chapter, says that people who are connecting to his works very often are right women who are kind of replacing him as he's doing his projects as hosts for his exhibitions. Uh, just a kind of an anecdote about how about our own experience, my own experience, I would say, with you, and one of the reasons I think why it's. Uh, I'm grateful and so wonderful to talk to you because I remember about our 
early um, encounters, during one of which you brought a lavishly cooked meal into a classroom, right? And I remember that you didn't make any fuss about it. It was not part of an artwork. It was just something that you did. And and I think that uh, in this kind of a self-vulnerability moment and as a self-disclosure moment, right? I'm trying to acknowledge this because I think it's very important that masculinity is being more and more uh, changed, right? The stereotypes of masculinity are being more and more changed on the one hand. And on the other hand, uh, I'm also acknowledging the fact that potentially we need to create some space and we can, we need to continue continuously creating spaces for welcoming men, which would not necessarily only be in the traditional biblical, right, or Quranical or kind of more ecumenical sense of the word, but rather just, you know, men welcoming women, children, other men, refugees, and so on and so forth. Well, <laughs> yeah, the story that you're recalling, I remember it very well, while, while at the same time recalling the impulse and the follow-through of having done it many times, you know, in, in different scenarios, different situations. I think in, in many ways it had to do with my own upbringing and just these experiences that I've had of building community around meals and breaking down, maybe this is the wrong way to put it, but relaxing the room in a way. And if ever if it's ever allowed, and I, I know you know for a fact that some teachers are that that's not a thing that some teachers would welcome because it also feels chaotic at the same time. You know, it feels like you're welcoming a certain degree of chaos into the room, uh, and maybe even it feels like time wasting, right? Um, mm -hmm. But it's been <laughs> but it's been my experience that my most significant pedagogical moments, both as a teacher and as a learner have probably been around some kind of shared meal. I even remember, you know, for for what it is, like all of the years of schooling that I've that I've undertaken for my own degrees, you know, there was a lot of classes that I had to go to, a lot of coursework that I had to do and a lot of assignments that I had to take care of, but some of the richest learning that I've had it, it has been with my cohorts. So whoever it was that I was were, was in those classes with me when afterwards you would go out for either a drink or or a meal, you know, or or when you were working, if you would stop to have a meal together or just inviting each other to, to each other's homes. And I think maybe in some ways it makes me a little sentimental because I think we didn't have any, much more to give, you know, and so we felt like the only thing we had to give was that, you know, and 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 it was sort of disarming to do it through food because any other thing might feel well and i can't imagine what it would be but maybe anything any other form of intimacy might have been too unwelcoming i guess is <laughs> or like it it would have been hit or miss in terms of whether or not people would have been wanting to spend time with us and and when i say us it's because my wife my partner and my and our four kids were a tremendous component of those gestures like we it was never really like me doing it all by myself but there, there's always this sort of collaborative backstory that I would be remiss to not mention 
and you did uh even at the time when you brought that meal you mentioned them you mentioned uh your wife you you talked about it and i think even that was in itself not something that is stereotypically expected and i wonder whether the world whether um we are uh ready for welcoming men you know whether and i think that's something that the country lived through uh, right and how is different kinds of masculinity been asserted and what is considered to be a man and and very often i find right that that uh, if you think about contemporary art that's still uh, a kind of works that are privileged as more radical as more you know progressive they are often works which align with that old fashioned notion of the avant garde of breaking things right of certainly not uh, this invisible very quiet uh, one on one types of works that limiting waiters so i know that we also uh, plan to discuss a little bit this uh, question of institutional hospitality which you already referred to and and how artists often find themselves in this precarious position right on the one hand they also they are kind of welcoming audiences in this type of work i'm thinking now about mito sen and how she used uh, in the chapter that we write about her work how um, she uses her artisan residence projects as a kind of a pushback against this idea that she would be a perfect guest right and she's trying to think through her projects as questioning or extending institutional hospitality to others or to uh, throw it back at an institution or the person who is hosting her as an artisan residence um the, this this whole relationship to institutional hospitality is also pretty fraught right it's not the kind of a easy type of relationship and I, and i also know that within our discussions about uh the art world uh that's been this on social practice art there's been this ongoing uh questioning of uh this type of art because it's happens always in the galleries right and i often heard it as i was presenting this works and giving early chapters to read to people that uh it's a kind of like seen as uh, as lose lose right if uh, limiting ways doing it in the gallery it's seen as something circumscribed and prescribed and a safe space of the gallery not art in the world enough but when people baka or me to send take it out of the gallery into the real world into LA right and question being this anticipation that artists would be perfect guests of institutions and well behaved and giving them what they want then somehow uh, some artists are praised for it and other artists continue to be invisible when they do that and you and i talked about how this type of works might also feed that invisibility which uh you know many minority artists and women artists already been encountering right so what do we do about institutional relationship uh, with artists how do you approach that in your own work or what do you think about it i i know that there's a lot of artists well I don't know that there's a lot but I have a lot of artist examples I should say a handful I have a handful of artist examples real life contemporary current artist examples 
mostly in Chicago because I'm I'm close to Chicago. That's the that's the scene that I'm most familiar with. Um, and and also because I think that Chicago has a very generous and hospitable art scene where you see a lot of artists who, when they're allowed through the door, they hold the door open for a bunch of other people to get through the door. For example, I believe it was Occupy Museums in, in one of the uh, Whitney Biennials where they invited a bunch of other artists to show within their space, right, of of their show. And, and for me, that is... It's a tricky move, but when you can do it and when the institution that is hosting you allows you to then host others, it can be a very fruitful time for everybody. It's it's almost like that that saying of like a, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? I see this even more in the sort of bureaucratic aspects of being in the institution because this is in large part where a big the battle, the battle for representation and and equity and justice is happening because when you're on a decision making panel and you have to make decisions about who gets in who gets funding and i know the the, the resources are limited but to always keep that internal eye open and stay vigilant about where i'm standing and how whether or not that allows me to help somebody else fabricate a key or to get through the door, or if I can pass my key along to somebody else, if, if that metaphor fits, uh, so that they can then get through the door. I want to do as much of that as possible. And it has become actually one of the most essential aspects of my teaching practice to try to let as many people through the door who wouldn't conventionally fit perhaps within what the academy expects, both in terms of identity representation, but also modes of working. So I'm interested in people who want to or have been thinking through other ways to create scholarship or other ways to present that scholarship, other ways to present themselves as scholars. Whenever I'm in the room and I'm the only non-white person at the table, I feel like it's my responsibility to, and I know that there's other people at the table who who have taken on this challenge themselves also. So I think it's a joint effort, but but I'm constantly like looking and thinking, who are we forcing to be on the margins of this simply because we can't figure out a way to think about this in a way that is not along the status quo, right? Or along the, the way that we've always thought about it. Anything where I could boomerang my position of privilege for other people who are doing great work and could use that um, that a little bit of leverage, then I, I want to do it. A gallery, an exhibition, the publication of a book, uh, the writing of an article. I have to say that it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of people having done it for me. You know, so I, I almost feel like it's, you know, I'm not trying to be too sappy about it, right? But it really is there's a lot of grace that has been pointed in my direction and it has allowed me to not only continue to practice the way that I practice, but also to figure out some new things that I wouldn't have taken the risks if the people were not supporting me or like trying to, you know, elevating my, what I was doing. Uh, if you don't mind uh, to tell that wonderful story about the wrestling team. That's an early, so that's a very early example when I was in high school. 
we used to live in an area where my parents didn't want me to go to high school. And so when I was about to get to high school, they moved into a, a suburb, actually, of Chicago. The students were predominantly white at the school. And I joined the wrestling team. Most of the students, actually, all of the students were white, with the exception of myself and another young man who was uh, Filipino. And we were not the best wrestlers. Uh, we, we were okay. Uh, you know, we, we were on the starting team, but we were not the best wrestlers on the team. Uh, but we had this coach, uh, and he was also a white man, uh, Coach Tom Klatt. He made myself and the other young man, the Filipino uh, young man, uh, into the captains of the team. And it was a really life-altering experience, actually, because I had never thought of myself in a position of leadership whatsoever. And mostly it was through like cultural conditioning, right? Where you sort of just sit back and, and let the kids who ha have sort of been taught how to be that way take over. You know, you always kind of sat back and let other kids take over. Um, but from that time on, I saw that it could be a possibility. And not only that, the other kids saw that too, all, all of our teammates. And it was nothing you know, the teacher didn't, the coach didn't do anything, didn't make any announcements or anything like that. He just said, these are your two captains. And we were, we were the two captains for two years and nobody asked about it. Like nobody said, you know, why them or whatever, but it, it felt really deliberate. Like it felt like something that he was doing on purpose. Actually, after I got my PhD, I went back and I, I found him probably at the end of his teaching career, actually. And uh, I went back to the high school and I hadn't been back in years. And he came up and he saw me. He still remembered me, of course. And I told him the story and the, of what he had done. And he was in tears. Like he he couldn't believe it. I, we were both in tears because it, it was just such an important um, gesture that he made. In, in many ways, it didn't cost him anything to do it, you know, but he I think he knew who needed it the most. Thank you so much for sharing it. I, I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I think that those are the moments where I feel that we, we need to continue, right? That we, we, we should try to continue to bring it back to something in the book. Immediately for me, it was this uh, story of the towel uh, in the conclusion that can Aptiker done, that it can only be done through relationship. Uh, right, that it can only be done if uh, someone stays with the community. And just to tell our listeners the story, it's about uh, a difficult moment when uh, Ken Aptika was working on an exhibition in Lübeck in Germany, and uh, someone told him about the story of a towel. Uh, it, this towel belonged to the Karlbach family. The Karlbach family was uh, restricted uh, during the uh, Nazi Germany in the late 30s from getting food. And there was a, some uh, anonymous family that was leaving food at their doorstep. And as the uh, family was leaving food at the doorstep, at some point they were taken, the Kalbach family was taken to, um, most of them perished in a concentration camp after they were taken to the, to, to the concentration camp. But they left the towel before they were taken that night. They left a kitchen towel on their gate. After many years passed, one of the survivors uh, from the Kalbach family came to Lubeck in the 80s, if I remember correctly, and was given uh, honors as one of the survivors of the Holocaust period. And a woman came up to him 
and just passed that towel and told him the story. She did not introduce herself and she left. And the towel was kept by the descendant's daughter who still had that towel in Manchester. They lived in Manchester at the time. And because the artist, Ken Aptiker, was spending time with the community as he was preparing to make his exhibition, as he was painting his paintings, he wanted the towel to be a part of the exhibition and he included the story into um, into the painting. One of the paintings had that particular story, what happened around this towel, because he felt that this towel represented hope. This towel represented hope in humanity. This towel represented gratitude of the Karlbach family for people who were providing them food, risking their own lives in the Nazi Germany, a German family, risking lives for a Jewish family in the time when it was very real, right, for them, talking about risking lives um, for hospitality. How I came about to learn about this story, uh, besides of visiting Ken Aptika in his studio, he asked me to translate this story that he was putting on, on the painting into Russian, because the only, survive, the only current Jewish community that Lubick has, a new Jewish community coming predominantly from the Soviet, former Soviet Union. So he asked me to translate it into Russian. And of course, it prompted me to think through other issues of my own positionality as a Russian, but also going back to your story about how those types of stories, they pass from one, right, from one place to another, from one generation to another, what one is arresting, Right, how community can arrest uh, its own welcome um, and destroy hospitality and punish its own people for kind of hospitality they want to provide to others. Or at the same time, it can uh, try to revive it. It can try to bring it back. And so for me, it was interesting how the towel at the exhibition, uh, right, we talk about art objects and we talk about Right, what they represent. I know you're also interested in in those objects which are looking mundane. Right, it's not something that is uh, made, but it has that investment. It has that history that we are passing uh, from generation to generation with a certain kind of hope. And I guess that as we are uh, having our conversation today, uh, you would see that in that conclusion, I was cautious. Right? I'm still believing in, um, I'm believing certainly in hope, but I'm not sure what, what we can learn even from that, from that story. Right? I, I think that we can learn as much about the capacity for risk in the name of our neighbors as much as we can learn about capacity for evil um, among neighbors. And, and we never know, right, when we talk about these grand gestures, another point which I think I learned from Ken Aptiker's, um work is that we never know which gesture would become this important gesture. Right? That I, Maybe this German family did not figure out what it even means to us today when they were just simply giving food. Maybe they did not think it's that risky. When we share food, when we bring when we do these small things we, we know every day people are doing right now uh, in this country and around the world, 
right? That's a promise which I start with, kind of some ideals of uh, hospitality. But on the other hand, I don't know how you feel building up on your own experience, how you feel about you know, more coming back to the U.S. context. And I write about this American, right, Southern kind of idea of hospitality or inhospitality. What would you say, where are we in this moment, like transporting ourselves from, you know, my own positionality and Canoptica's work in Lubeck? Do you have hope as you are thinking about your own trajectory, right, and bringing in the stories and trying to pass it on? We've just been in a pretty difficult, I think, four years uh, where a lot of that, what I've been writing about, right, thinking about, I didn't know when a book would come out completely. When I started, it was a lot of discussion about Syrian refugees in Europe, right, but it came out during the pandemic in a year of an administration that really destroyed many of this even like a facade, right, of this idea, give me your tired masses and the poor and so on and so forth, right? And so much been been questioned and challenged. What's your own take on this? Um, I think maybe the thing that I would think about, and I'd first I want to say I'm hopeful. <laughs> I, I remain hopeful. Uh, and the reason I remain hopeful is because I have come to understand that particularly in these kinds of works, and again, I'll use the term conceptualism or small c conceptual art, but like almost everything that fits under this kind of mode of working, each work exists in two modes. It exists in the actual and it exists in the symbolic. And I think that on some level, the reverberations of the work within the actual are far and wide and unseen, but very real and have the power to transform and to bring people together and to change people's minds and to teach. I believe that the symbolic realm of these works also does that, um, but it's different. It, it sometimes needs conversation. It needs a teacher, maybe it needs a, a, a facilitator. In the case of this book, this book does that. Like this book represents all of these artworks in the symbolic form in a way, but tells stories to, and, and unpacks the works and the, and the questions around the work as a way to uh, get us closer to that first, um, I think it was Claire Bishop who called it the uh, first ontology, right? So the, the first way of sensing it, which is the way that we would have sensed it if we were actually with Lee Meng Wei or if we were actually in the room with Faith Wilding. I guess my hope lies in the fact that in all of those in-between unseen spaces, something is happening. Like I have no doubt that something is happening because in the tumult of the last four years, we got to see a lot of the symbol in terms of whenever we would turn on the news channels or whenever we would go through our newsfeed or something, we would see red or blue, red or blue. And, and depending on what the algorithm of your particular newsfeed was, you might get more blue or more red, right? But you were just getting, we were just getting like, here's the symbol that you respond to the most, right? This is the thing that you align with the most. But anytime you heard a story, and it was mostly in long form journalism, so podcasting or, or radio programs like This American Life or the, this kind of thing, where you would get a story perhaps about two disparate, maybe 
polarized or or opposite sides of the pole of the spectrum persons who somehow found a middle ground or a space where they could have a reconciliation and i notice that whenever those people would talk about the fact that they were red but they got along with somebody who was blue or they were blue and they got along with somebody who was red they always identified something that mostly lies invisible or mostly lies under the realm of the unseen so they would talk about how they got to know them as people how they got to know their families how they got to serve them how they got to um, listen to them like all of these things which again maybe are very difficult to turn into examinable objects maybe they're it's difficult to take them out of the realm of the first ontology into the second ontology out of the from the realm of you know experience into the realm of symbolism where we could then show it and say see how it worked here and those radio programs do a pretty good job of taking us there it, it just is a matter of whether or not we're willing to let those things affect us in the way that we then get taught something and we're transformed internally. Most of the time, I think we're not. We're not ready to do that. We're not ready to see something that is symbolic and and let it affect us to the point where we say, I, I'm going to have to change who I am <laughs> because I, because I want to be a different person. Like I want to be closer to that, right? And I don't know if I was if I did a good job right now of explaining what I was meaning by the two different ontologies, right? But the, but in the symbolic ontology where you're just looking maybe at the representation of the thing, um, it sometimes can get difficult without an aid, without some kind of facilitation. Even if it means, I don't even mean that you have to have a hierarchy where there's a teacher who's telling you what it means. Sometimes it's just somebody who's willing to have a conversation with you about it so that you can have an actual critical conversation as we are having here to try to come to a better understanding of the thing that we're looking at. In the first ontology, the one that's filled with affect, the one that is in situ, the one that has to do with the actual experience and maybe some of the intangible, or I should say the non-concrete aspects of whatever happened, the event, I think a lot of transformation can happen there if we're willing, if we're open to it. Um, and, and that's what keeps me hopeful because I have seen it in my 20 plus years of teaching. I see it on a daily basis, maybe on a minute to minute basis that within the realm of that face-to-face -face exchange between myself and another person, another human being, even if I'm not teaching, like officially teaching, or even if I'm not like checking in to see whether or not they have their work done or whatever, when I'm just maybe saying, how was your weekend? Or when I'm maybe just saying, you know, <laughs> it's making me think actually about the first chapter about the good manners, right? Or the the behaviors, right? But, but that kind of chit chat, you know, which sometimes opens up that middle space for there to be a kind of space for things to happen, space for things to unfold. You set up a welcoming environment as a means to allow uh, these things to emerge. And, and maybe now that I'm thinking about it, for me, welcoming has a lot to do with forgiveness. I know that I come to almost every situation, every event in my life with expectations. And sometimes when my expectations are not met, I have to figure out a way to immediately forgive. And and it's it's I'm not talking about redemption. I'm talking about just letting something go or, or, or not carrying it so heavily or, or understanding that it's just 
very different than me. And I have so much to learn still that this person might actually be the person who's going to teach me all of that. And I've seen other people do it so well, and I'm inspired by that. That's why I have hope. Thank you. What a what a great, I think, answer. And uh, because it, this idea of openness is so so much part of what I also learned from um, the artist whom I wrote about. Um, I think one of the uh, people who really surprised me way it took me myself was Kathy Heiss' work, right? Her openness uh, to work with um, something so so strange, right? Like transgenic rats. And indeed, again, this idea that we are doing something invisible. She first started this work at home. Uh, she uh, kind of challenged me in my own relationship, I think, to the, the question of animals. It brought me all the way to Jainism, which I was always interested in. But just until her work, I did not, I think, think of what are the implications. And then there is this, as you know, animal studies is a, was a very big part of uh, right, what Derrida talked about in hospitality and big part of uh, academic discussion and um, artistic discussion about environmentalism, but somehow I realized that there are two separate groups of people that I think Kathy High breached uh, or brought together because she remained open for me. One is animal rights people, and the second is this um, animal studies people. It's like animal studies people can write beautifully about including, of course, greatly Donna Harvey, companion species, but it's not clear to me often where, what does it mean for the animal, right? Like, where are we going with it? But animal rights people, on the other hand, they have very little well, theory, right? But they often go to genes and this ahimsa and this nonviolence principle and say, look, just let them be. Right? Like, let them be. Be open to potentially let them go. and um, for me, it was a learning curve. It was an uneasy work. And when I was writing about it, this uh, question was coming back again and again. People were commenting that when she did it in her home, uh, just for those who are unfamiliar, just listening, uh, what happened was Kathy High purchased from a transgenic genetically engineering company three transgenically engineered rats. And she took care of them until they passed away for a few months. And she changed her life for them, her travel schedule. Uh, she created an environment for them, talking about welcoming open environment. And then someone came, Nita Thompson was doing Embracing Animal Show at Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. And he invited her to show new rats, right? Because those are the ones who already passed away. and. And so when I write about this work, very often people who are coming from a community writing about animals, um, including in contemporary art, they feel uneasy that she showed them in a gallery. Right? We're going back to this question of authenticity in relation to uh, gallery versus home versus real world. Uh, once I figured out why for me it was not a problem, and you know I'm a pretty critical person often, and I realized from the red point of view, they don't know. So if they feel great, if they are comfortable in a gallery, right, in a museum, it's we are the ones who feel 
that galleries are contaminated space, right? It's the wrong space. But maybe they were, you know, they were even feeling better because Kathy Hyde had dogs and cats in her house. She had pets. And so, and that's why I wrote those two dialogues from the red point of view. And I don't know whether it works or not. I know that it's a kind of a solution that might be counterproductive um, in the academic sense of the world. I thank uh, University of Minnesota Press for publishing it because few people said, oh, we couldn't believe that, you know, it, 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 it went through. I think that we are becoming more open on so many different levels, I think, in terms of uh, what kind of writing considered academic and how we experiment so that, uh, and the reason I kept those dialogues because a student who was helping me with images said that she got it immediately and she felt that, please, please, she said, keep those dialogues, keep them. I, I got your point. It didn't look too uh, cheesy, right? Or uh, kind of taking over the voice of a red because, because my point also was that neither animal studies scholars know what rats are thinking, right? Nor Kathy Hai knew, nor I know, right? It's a, we are all, as you said, so, so I think clearly and uh, beautifully that there is this symbolic level at which we're operating here. And in a symbolic level, we just need to find a form, right? That would do what right, we want it to do. And that form doesn't always need to be full of special terms. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that's what I, I mean, that's the point. That's what I was saying. And I think that it's done really effectively in that chapter where if you can be taken, if the symbolic form in some way can transport you in, if the second ontology in some way can transport you into the first ontology, then you really have something because you're, you get into the affectual realm through that symbol. Uh, and I mean, that's just going back to the point I made uh, uh, at the beginning of our conversation about the book being welcoming. I mean, I think it's it's part of what writing theory should be. So because I, so I, we have this conversation a lot with our graduate students because they see the form of theory and they think that they need to mimic the form of theory. And usually it's so wrongheaded because what they're thinking about is the complexity of the language or maybe the density of the citations. They're almost devoiding their, their own voice from that writing that they're doing. Instead, what we do is the way, at least the way that I teach it, is I am constantly reminding them that the word theory and the word theater come from the same etymology, which actually means it means to be beheld. And the way that we experience theater is usually through a kind of, it's an affectual experience that we most more often than not have to return to in some way. So that there has to be this constant coming back to it. And every time you come back, you're a different person. And that different person is able to then interact with the thing that you're beholding in a grown way. Like you're constantly growing alongside the thing. Because most of the time what happens is the confusion is the book, right? The book is coded as something that needs to be read from one part to the other part, and that by the end of it, you should not only have completed it, but you should have gotten it. And so I always talk to my students about like, 
this idea of getting something because they read Derrida or they read Levinas and they say, I don't get this. Right. And I'm like, it's, you're not supposed to get it. You're supposed to behold it. And then you're supposed to come back to it and you're supposed to come back to it and you're supposed to come back to it over and over again. Right. It brings down the level of intimidation almost immediately because I'm not presenting it as some material as maybe they had been trained in all their other schooling that they should get it. Instead, I'm saying, encounter it and come back to it over and encounter it where you're at now. And we'll have a discussion as a group, as we tend to do in school, in seminars. And then you'll go back another day and you'll encounter it again. And and you'll have a different discussion at that point, either through your own writing or through the conversations you have with other people. To be honest, this is part of the reason why I love teaching art students. That resonates with them almost immediately because this is the way that they treat their their experiences with art. They're not coming to art hoping to get it. They're coming to art wanting to behold it. I mean, when we only have to think about our relationship to music, for example, or movies that we really like and, and things that essentially have theoretic in in the theoretical affected our very core who we are like they you know people have based their entire life philosophies on films that they consider their their favorite films or or quotes from songs that have been really inspiration or whatever and i look at the way that that stuff can affect the way that we learn and the way that we think and then i see my graduate students for example looking at and my colleagues actually looking at theory or what's identified as theory, and having to make this weird decision about whether or not they're going to pantomime the academy for the sake of, you know, saying I I'm I'm I can play with the big kids, or really really say, you know, this was my encounter with it at this point, and then I'll have to come back to it because um, it's really something that was pretty dense. <laughs> uh, so, so in some ways, like what I love about this, that chapter and this book in particular is that it gives a lot of things to behold. I would never identify this book as under theorized or less theory, or, you know, when making that kind of comparison about the form of it to other books that maybe have the appearance of more theoretical. I mean, for me, this is a heavily theoretical book because it's something that I can continue to come back to partially because it welcomes me. And second of all, because it presents the symbols of that second ontology so robustly in, in including giving language, giving words to these rats. Right. So that that to me is very it's so powerful, so useful as theory. Thank you. It's uh, incredible to hear you say that. It's a labor of many hours. For me, it was much more about the works themselves, right? Giving due to what I felt they, they taught me and, you know, translating it in, in whatever form or the way, uh, whatever way I could, uh, which was very hard to do for a, I call myself sometimes a recovering theorist. <laughs> You know, that someone, someone who, or recovering academic uh, in terms of writing, uh, you said it so well about pantomime. I feel that very often when graduate students encounter theory, right, they treat it as something that they have to put on top of everything else. There would be some kind of, you know, term or theory that they would find that would be good enough uh, as a sauce, you know, you, you have all the ingredients of your meal in your dissertation, and then you have to present it 
you have to sell it to your advisor and this is the source mm -hmm. that's uh we, we found some some theory and it could be much more powerful you're right it could be encounter it could be uh something like uh what bill hooks talks about in her theories liberator practice that that's why that's why i believe that the canon in many ways uh is challenged today it's not so much that the canon, whether it's not history or critical theory uh, uh, in contemporary art studies, because the because you can't do much with that canon if you do not use it as a source, right? You can you can't do much with that canon simply because it did not mean you at all as one of the audience members or as one of people whom it was um, referring to. There are many different ways that we not only did not mean you, it actively excluded you in many of these works. That that your exclusion is a meat of that very work, right? That work of an exclusion. Your theorizing of teaching and I think of art pedagogy is something that is very close to this book and. If you don't mind, we have uh, I think a few minutes left. I would love to hear more about, since I mentioned Mitu Senos and what she does with this idea of artists in residence and how she challenges that. Um, in your own in your own book, um, Teacher as Artist in Residence, the most uh, radical form of expression to ever exist. I love the title. Uh, can you say a little bit more about that? Because I feel that there is a certain affinity in the stance there. Yeah. So, so the 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 thing actually that I take up in that book is is invisibility actually, and it has to do with a certain exercise in restraint, which I actually think is a thing that I have to do frequently when I'm hosting or welcoming. When I have people into my house that, or into my space. And even as a teacher, when I'm advising students and I'm hosting them uh, in some way, my instinct is to be in the limelight, is to put myself forward. But the discipline that I try to undertake is to have the restraint to pull back and yield the limelight so that everybody could feel like they had a space to say what they had to say. And this idea of teacher as artist in residence has to do with paying attention to that kind of yielding as a kind of material. The reason I say it's the, the most radical form of expression to ever exist is because I really think it pushes up against that edge where nothing is produced, nothing is talked about, nothing is shown. It's not this kind of activity where like the artist just does it for themselves. It's that everybody knows that it happened, but maybe they don't really know that what happened was creative practice, but that what happened was just like your, their lives, our lives, our lives happened. And, and the way that they happened was there was some deliberate, deliberate gestures that were made in order for the gate to be open, in order for the food to be prepared, in order for the forgiveness to be given, in order for the re moment of reconciliation to be had, but really going out of my way to not make a big deal out of it. Because my instinct is to make a big deal out of it. My instinct as an artist is to pin the thing I did up on the wall and invite everybody over to look at it. And I'm sort of trying to push against that. The verse in the Bible that you quote, I think, is the one about uh, welcoming the stranger 
into your home, right? Or welcoming uh, the foreigner and the stranger. The one that I like, I think is also from the Sermon on the Mount, is the one where Jesus says, when you do your charitable work, don't let your right hand see what your left hand is doing. That's a practice that I really try to get into. It's not easy. And I fail at it a lot because I am an artist too. And I like to show what I did. (laughs) But when it comes down to the actual, the core of the thing, uh, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get shown. We, We may show like a picture of something that represents the event, or maybe there's a paper that gets written or an exhibition that gets had, but the real work that that work's never going to, I mean, it's going to be perceived. It's going to be felt by everybody, hopefully, who was involved, including myself. But I don't know that it will ever be fully represented. Can you say a little bit more about that quote, what we started with our conversation today, that like in Linda Heather's case, that you are not supposed to kind of show off what you've done? Is it what the meaning of that I think so. uh, biblical verse is? I think so. I th- I think it has to do with now I may be swimming into waters that are too deep for me here, but personally for me, what it has to do with is trusting in the reward of my labor and that it doesn't have to come immediately. My instinct and the way that I was trained as an artist was to complete the feedback loop as fast as possible. So if I made something, I needed to either get something back for it immediately, either either from myself or from my my cohort or from my teachers or from the market. Like I needed to find out what the validation of this was, how it affected others. I these are things that I was trained to do as an artist. And and at every level, both from my studio mate, I needed to find out what that person had to say about it and all the way to the market. I needed to know how it affected the market. And that was constantly in my head. This is sort of, I don't want to say anti that, but it's it pushes against that because it doesn't push against it under the assumption that nothing will happen or that there will be no fruit from the labor. It's just trusting that that might happen in a moment, perhaps when I'm not expecting it, and perhaps even when I'm not even around to see it anymore. Um, The piece that I sort of is my guiding light for this kind of work, and I'm sure there are other works like this, but I I don't know if you're familiar with John Cage's um, ASLSP, which is that um, it's, it translates into as slow as possible. And it's that piece that um, you can play at whatever duration you want and currently it's being played in a in a chapel in Germany over a period of some, I think like some 650 years or something like that. They started playing it in 1991, I think, and it's still playing and it will continue to be played after I'm dead, after everybody on the planet right now is dead. <laughs> um, and nobody will have seen the beginning and the end of that work. And and if you ever, I'm, I'm probably never going to go see it in person but you can watch videos of it being played on YouTube. Um, and it, you're just, all you're witnessing is a little sliver. Like all you're, wi- all you're witnessing is a moment in time. And I'm happy with that. Like I'm happy with my work being just a moment in time, recognizing that perhaps there's something that will occur after I'm gone or in other places where I don't get to see it. And that's why I called it. That's why I really think that teaching is in many ways the most radical form of expression to ever exist. It completes the feedback loop without you. 
Thank you so much, uh, Jorge. What a great ending to our conversation today. I learned so much. It's been a gift talking to you today. I uh, thank you for your generosity and for your time. Well, I want to say thank you to you, first of all, for writing the book. You know, I know that it was a labor uh, to do it. The fact that it exists, I think, is going to to do exactly the thing that I was just saying a moment ago, which is it's going to teach many people and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a feedback loop that you probably won't see completed, but it will have had a, a really deep impact. It certainly has in my life already, and I'm really grateful for it. And I, I, my plan is to, to recommend it to others um, very soon. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. For more information, visit z.umn.edu forward slash arrested welcome. Thank you for listening.